some of y'all know, my favorite, uh, probably my favorite holiday special of any kind, not just Halloween special, is the Garfield Christmas, or Garfield Halloween special. My children know this. The Garfield Halloween special is the best 27 minutes of comedic genius ever written. And uh, the old man that they stumble on in the cabin in that one says, you picked a poor day to come calling, my friends. And that's what I felt uh, this morning when I thought, we're resuming Sunday school, and we're resuming it with Job 31. And Job 31 is a list of sins. It is Job going sin by sin, sort of examining himself and making his final defense before God that he is not guilty of these things. And, and as a reminder, we've said it many times, Job is not saying he's sinless. He's not saying he has never committed these sins or that he's never recently committed these sins. He's saying that with regards to his life, his life is not characterized by these sins. His life is characterized by Uh, confession, repentance, and the turning from these sins. And that's a big difference. There's a difference between lying, which is bad and sinful, and being a liar, which sends you to hell. There's a difference between being uh, guilty of the sin of lust, which is adultery of the heart, and being an adulterer, who will never inherit the kingdom of heaven. And, and, and Job's case here, don't, don't confuse it. He's not saying, I have never sinned any of these things. He's saying, I am not these things. My friends have just said for chapter after chapter that the reason I'm enduring what I'm enduring is because I am these things. They typify my life. They define who I am. I'm hiding or covering up one of these. And Job goes through sin by sin and says, no, 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 I'm not. I'm not. Um, But that doesn't make for a super fun Sunday school, but it's the Sunday school you get. (laughs) And it might make for an important one because it was useful to me to have to go through this list and wrestle with these sins. Job is making his final defense here. He talked about the past, his glorious experience with God's presence. He talked about the present, his unspeakable suffering. And and now he's making his summary case. This will be the end of Job's presentation of his case before God. Next we'll have Elihu and then God and then Job's over. Uh, Lots of chapters of those things, but he knows it's not that he's a great sinner. And so here, he's going to attempt to lay that charge to rest once and for all. And the way you lay it to rest is by going through the series of sins that you've been accused of by his friends or that are common to all of us and to this this station of life, the age of life that he finds himself in, and saying, did I do that? And again and again and again, he's going to say no. And he he invokes a really common practice in the ancient Near East, which is uh, self, uh, it's it's called self-imprecation, 
um, it's the idea that you're, uh, when we were kids, you used to swear on all kinds of things, right? To show people that you're really serious. You're telling the truth this time, not like the last 37 times. This one's real. Well, uh, a self-imprecatory oath is the most extreme version of that. Uh, Jeopardy, Bible Jeopardy trivia question. Where do you see the first self-imprecatory oath in the Bible and who makes it? You remember that weird story with Abraham where God is making the covenant with Abraham and he cuts the animals in half and his spirit passes through the halved animal carcasses, carci, carcasses, <laughs> not sure what that form of speech is. And so you've got God has literally sliced in half bulls and goats and probably not chickens. They're pretty small. And his spirit passes between them. And what is God saying in that oath? God's saying, if I do not keep my covenant, may this happen to me. And, and God's actually, he's, God knows exactly what he's saying. He's speaking on multiple levels there that may not be obvious to us, but that is what would happen to God. If God were ever to deny his covenant, to, to not be faithful, God would fall apart. God would cease to be. God cannot be faithless. And so these animals are cut in half and God goes through and says, if this happens, may this happen to me. That's a very common practice in the ancient Near East. When you're making a serious oath, you are, you are calling down, and it's a dangerous thing. But our version of it is the very trivial, so trivial as almost to be blasphemous. May God strike me dead if. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> But it's the same thing. It's this idea of, I am so earnest, sincere, and confident in what I'm about to claim that if it's not true, may, may I be dead or, or worse. And, and that's what Job's doing here. He's, he's calling down a curse from God if he's found to be uh, lying or deceptive in this. Karen, would you read... One through eight. I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my inheritance from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened with deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned aside from the way, and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat, and let what grows for me be rooted out. So uh, the sin Job starts with is lust, and we'll talk about the list of sins in a moment. But I just want you to see the format, because this is going to repeat over and over again, where he says, if I have. That's a declaration of innocence. When you say, if I've spoken harshly to my wife today, may she punch me in the face. Well, clearly I don't want to get punched in the face, so I'm making a declaration of innocence. I have not done this, therefore my face will not be punched. And that's what Job's going to do going through this list of sins, is if I've done this, again, not never, if I've done this without regard for God, if I've done this without seeking forgiveness, if I've done this without repentance, if my life were characterized by these things, then may this bad stuff 
happened to me. If I've committed these sins, then let the penalty come. And that's the pattern that's going to flow all throughout chapter 31 as he goes through a, a massive list of sins. Uh, lust, dishonesty, adultery, oppression, neglect of the needy, greed, idolatry, vindictiveness, meanness, hypocrisy, and exploitation. That's what we get to talk about this morning. Yay. Uh, Now, I do, Derek Thomas says, and and this got me thinking, um, because we do have to emphasize Job's innocence. God vindicates Job's innocence at the front end and the back end of the book. So Job is not wrong here that he is innocent of the charges his friends have made. He's not making a claim that he's absolutely perfect. But Derek Thomas wrote this. Equally, however, his protest goes too far. Job appears blind to the deceitfulness of sin. There appears to be a remarkable depth of self-righteousness in him at this point. It is something which Elihu will point out in the next chapter. And, And that is this tension of Job's error in the book of Job. His friends are not right, but it seems unfathomable to to Job that they could be. (laughs) It it, it doesn't seem possible to Job that there could be hidden or secret sins the way the Psalms so frequently uh, call us to pray for. And that's what Elihu's going to point out is you're not the the horrible, wicked sinner deserving of this the way your friends are saying. But you seem to think you're something better than you are. You do seem to think you're at this some level where you could honestly say, I only deserve good from God. And that's not a place you want to be. And again, Job's not over the top on that point. So we want to hold it in balance. It's because some people will rewrite Job to say, well, that's it. That's the sin for which all of this was coming down upon him was his pride and self-righteousness. No, now you're you've. You've ignored Job again. <laughs> God tells us at the beginning and the end, this isn't about Job's sin. But that doesn't mean there is no sin present. It's just not one of these sins, and they don't typify his life. He uses the word in this first one, I've made a covenant with my eyes. I, I don't think that's on accident that that's the first one. That he's setting the framework of this conversation in a covenantal point of view. That God has made a covenant with him, and now Job is making this covenant back with God. If these things are true, then pour out covenant curses on me. But I stand in front of you and claim my innocence. So that's what's happening here in chapter 31. And then what we'll do the rest of this morning, and we'll see if we finish, is is go through this list of sins and just talk about these individually for a minute. Um, and, And Job says some very helpful uh, interesting things about each one of these that I think are, are good for our thinking about them. But any questions about the theme of the chapter? What's Job's doing here? The covenant concept before we do a list of sins. <laughs> you might have already said this, but would you say his general tone has any humility? Or is it... It's, yeah, it's very hard to say. It's a good question. I, th- I think Job is in a legitimately pitiful place. In addition to his suffering, he has received these unjust accusations. And I think as we know about most of our pity parties, they're not usually fabricated out of whole cloth. 
there normally is some kernel of injustice there that gives rise to our self-pity. What we do wrong in our pity parties is then we apply it to everything that has ever happened or been said or, or done to us. Uh, and, and I think there could be some of that here. And I, I think that's what Derek Thomas is trying to say where Job starts in the right place. You'll see his, his words, his rhetoric, which is a reflection of his heart, overstep the line a few times. A little, green gifts. A little bit, yeah. A little, a little, for a guy who truly is a victim, there's really a victim complex here, right? Both of those things can be true. Just because uh, it's a conspiracy theory doesn't mean they're not out to get you, something like that. I don't know. The, there's a kernel of truth here, and then the nugget that goes a little too far. One of the hard work when you read something like this for me is trying to imagine any sin that I can say. Nah. Like, I got that one licked. Like, compared <laughs> yeah. to who? Like, yeah. Compared to most people around me? Yeah, okay, but that's not a good metric. Compared to God? No. And, and that's, and, and it's, a, it's a great point. And again, that's why we have to be so careful in defining what Job is and is not saying here. I think because we've been, uh, I've been planning for the, the congregational meeting, and so I was reviewing and thinking through the qualifications for elder and the responsibilities of being an elder. And I think as all four of our elders would tell you, there's one sense in which we read through that list and we laugh. And we're like, I'm out. <laughs> and so are these guys. Right? If it is, do I do the things I am supposed to do naturally, joyfully, consistently, and do I refrain from doing the things that I'm not supposed to do completely and, 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 and uh, reflexively almost, then I'm out, and so are the rest of these guys. It, it, I think the clarifying question is, is your, is your pattern of behavior typified by this thing versus that? And when it's not, you're not a liar, but when you lie, what do you do? We confess our sins. First, we have to call sin, sin. I think that's the most important step that so many of us want to skip. I think sometimes we even jump to confession before we've called sin, sin, and then we're not really clear on what we're confessing, and I'm not sure what the value of that is. We've got to label our sin as sin. This was a lie that I told because I wanted to look good in the eyes of other people. Lord, forgive me of my lying, because this is, I think, why we skip it. It's because when you start to label your sin as sin, you won't find just one. I just told a lie, right? Oh, God, forgive me, I lied. I told a lie because I wanted to look good in the other people, eyes of other people. Forgive me for lying. Forgive me for caring more about what they think than what you command. Forgive me for finding my worth in their estimation of me when you've already adopted me into your family and said that I'm a co-heir of the glory of Christ. That's a bigger confession, isn't it? <laughs> so we need to define our sin as sin. Uh, and then we need to ask honestly, uh, is this something that really has come to define me? There are the sins, there are the categories of sin with which we will always struggle because of the way we're wired, because of our upbringing. Because there, there are categories of sins that are they're going to be a lifelong battle for us. Just a quick comment, as Kathy was 
a test. I've forgotten most things about life. And uh, but I remember hearing a speaker long ago. Can't remember his name, but he just said, in relation to your sin, said, "Don't call it a mistake." Or yeah, you know, yeah. I did something not quite right. He said, "Call it whatever the sin is. Call it by its worst name." Yeah. You know, don't. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't tell the truth. You know, you hear a politician apologize, and it's like. Mistakes were made. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, uh, uh, something that I scream a lot on the inside and hopefully don't scream on the outside a lot to people is stop using the passive voice. When you put your sin in the passive voice, God is not pleased. Right, mistakes were made. That's, uh-huh, that's something compared with, yeah, I offended God and his holy law, and here's what I did. I, I did this. And I thought that was so profound last week when you sort of boiled it all sin down to two categories. Yeah. It all boils down to fear and pride. It does. And I was like, that's incredible. Because the the law itself is summarized in loving God and loving neighbor. And what prevents me from loving God and loving neighbor? Fear and pride. That's really it. And the combination of them is... I mean, we all experience that. The combination of fear and pride, uh, when they're working in tandem, Satan's shooting arrows from both sides, that's when we're at our absolute worst, or at least when we're at our absolute most dangerous to ourselves and to others. So Job goes through this list of sins. So let's talk about the first one, uh, lust. Karen already read it, so I won't reread it. But this is one through four. Kudos to Job for being more honest publicly (laughs) than many of us are willing to be about this sin. He is aware of the power of temptation in his life. And he is, has been determined this. I'm quoting Derek Thomas, by the way, he is determined to overpower sin in his life. And that really is a great way to look at sin. Sin is not something that happens to you. Sin is something that is coming and wrestling, trying to overtake you. And do you know what you're supposed to do? Wrestle back. The Holy Spirit is stronger. Full stop. There is no sin that can overtake you. If you are utterly determined not to sin, there is no sin that can overtake you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's very different than the, the, the things that we make where we say, well, I'm going to put these five man-made rules in my life. I'm not going to rely on the power of the Spirit. I'm not going to pray. I'm just going to follow these rules, and then I'm never going to sin. Yeah, that's, that, there, that doesn't work. That's, there's a lot of that about tithing on dill and cumin and not saying God's name the right way in the Old Testament. That, that stuff just doesn't work. So what does Job do tactically? to wrestle back against the sin and temptation of lust. He says he's going to control what he sees. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Here means it's the Hebrew word for young woman. How do I think I can wrestle back against lust and gaze at women? I can't. I have to, it's not the, where we get hung up on the, the, when we become little legalists is when we take these extra little rules. I'm not going to watch rated R movies. 
And we make that the thing that we say honors God. You know how I honor God? I don't watch rated R movies. Well, what are you saying about the person who does watch rated R movies? They can't possibly honor God. That's why you're a legalist. But if you say, I honor God by not putting that stuff in front of my eyes so that my heart is not lustful and that honors God. Ah, now you're getting somewhere. And that's what Job's doing here. He, the, the principle, the actual law that needs to be kept is to not be lustful. And he describes one of the ways that he has put into his life to try and keep him from that particular sin. And that is God honoring. And, and candidly, if I can um, slap some of us on the wrists, because, because of the way many of us were raised, I think we do this now. We, we look at those rules that people have made for themselves to keep God's law, and we think ill of them for it. We, we are way too comfortable looking at someone who's willing to go a step or two further, or even just a step or two different than we're willing to go to be righteous and to keep God's law. And, and we say, well, they're just getting wrapped up in workspace salvation. They think they can just perform for God. And I've done it. I'm telling you, I've done it. And so we need to be very careful there. If what they're doing is putting things in place in their life the same way Job did to try and avoid real sin, they're to be commended for that. We should pray for them and encourage them and consider whether or not we should imitate them in our lives. Uh, but the goal is to avoid the sin, not the, not the helpful things we may do to try and keep us from the sin. Several points come out here in this first one about lust that will carry through the rest of them. The first, again, these are from Derek Thomas. Um, First is sin must be dealt with. You have to scrutinize what you see. And if you don't, you will fall into sin. I was re-listening to the conference lectures from the Grow Conference this week. um, And I need to send you all that link because I would encourage everybody to either listen or re-listen to those. But uh, Jim Van Erden's opening lecture on the catechisms of life, and when he said, you are being catechized, every one of us, our children, and we are all being catechized. We're either being catechized intentionally by consuming things that are true and from God and good in order to build a godly uh, worldview, or we're being catechized by default. We're just soaking in the filth that the world produces and treats as normal, thinking that we're somehow going to be different, and we're not. It has a wearing effect on you. You become like what you're in. Uh, And what Job is saying is, yeah, you've got to scrutinize what you see. If you don't, you will fall into sin. The default end result of a human being is sin. That's what we do. And so God's given us the spirit. He's given us his word. He's given us these tools by which we can resist sin and overcome sin even. But that doesn't happen accidentally. It happens very intentionally. And as it starts to happen more naturally over life, that's because it's an instinct that you've built. It's a muscle you've built. It's not always as hard. It's not always as difficult as it is the first time we're seriously engaging with a type of sin. 
Job knows that his heart and mind are battlegrounds of conflict between the flesh and the spirit. Sin will not go away of its own accord. How many times have we prayed that or something like that? God, just make this go away. And God says in his word, that's not how this works. It's a war. The, the, the powers and principalities of darkness and of this world are fighting for your soul. It should be enough that we know the victory is ours in Christ. But it's not. And so we say, Lord, take it away. I can't, I can't endure anymore. And what we mean is I don't want to. It's too hard. It's too much work. However advanced we may be, we are never in a position of not having to deal with temptation. When you're thinking about a particular sin, now what I said earlier is true. There are times of life where because of things that are going on externally, you will be more prone to certain temptations than, than others. Um, you know, when, when you're poor, uh, being thankful to God in wealth is not a particular <laughs> temptation for that moment of your life. And trusting God for your daily bread is a lot further from mind when... You know, there's no worry about where your daily bread's going to come from. But with that said, to Jake's point earlier, you've never licked a single cent, ever. The moment you let your guard down, Satan will either pounce or he will make a note of, okay, I got this foothold for later when I need it. And in the spirit of loving one another, don't ever tell anyone or even think in your own heart Well, of course, that's easy for you. Of course, it's easy for you not to sin in this way. I don't think you want people applying that standard to you. I really don't. There are sins in my life that are much harder for me to resist and generally much easier for me to resist. But if I ever allow myself to think, therefore, I don't have to resist that one at all, I'm done. That's that's how I'm going to tumble headlong into it. Steve May, one of my great friends, many of you know, he and I were sharing a cigar a month ago at his house, and we were laughing about how pride can take so many forms that even our genuine humility can turn into a form of pride. You ever been proud about how humbly you handled a situation? (laughs) Right? Pride is so insidious in the way that it comes in and it can look so differently from person to person and moment to moment. Pride can look super meek and unassuming and be filled with disgusting, sinful pride. And pride can look you know, boastful and, and, and loud and obnoxious and, and we, we all hate that one uh, until we're the one doing it and then we have a good reason. Job also says the heart and mind must be guarded. This is back to putting things in place to resist temptation. So by restricting what he allowed himself to look at, he was in effect protecting what his mind dwelt upon. The eye, this is uh, uh, Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, is a gate through which all kinds of evil can gain access. And I think we know that's true. And that's why some of us are... um, to, to, are more careful. I, I know it looks legalist to some. It's why we're a little more careful about what we watch and the entertainment and what we listen to and the music that's in our house. And, the, and it's, it's, it's not because we think that makes us better than somebody else. It's because we think that the eye and the ears are a gate through which things come in. And it is very hard for things to come in that don't 
stick around while they're in there. And if the question is, what do I want to be sticking around, bouncing around my brain and my heart throughout the day? I think it's a valid question sometimes to look at American entertainment and say, is this it? Is this what I want to be bouncing around in my mind and my heart? One of the reasons, I mean, uh, there are plenty of ways in which my uh, enthusiasm for fish crosses over the line into sin and idolatry, I'm sure. But one of the reasons why I've always said that I'm such a big fish fan is that the lyrics are absolute nonsense. They, they, they literally are nonsense. It's, it's like children nursery rhyme poem nonsense. They're not trying to indoctrinate me with anything. There's no there there. The easiest thing in the world with fish music is to never remember or dwell on what they just said. <laughs> right? Uh, some of the other music we listen to, some of the music that I love, I was thinking about this yesterday in the car listening to one of my favorite satellite radio channels, which is the music I grew up on, which was my dad's music, which is 60s and 70s rock. 99% of it is sex and drugs. And I thought, what if the old people were right? The ones yelling at my parents that you shouldn't listen to this filth? What if it wasn't the rock and roll that was the problem, except that the rock and roll is always about sex and drugs? And why do you want that bouncing around your head and your heart all day long? Do we really think that Satan is not clever enough to use catchy tunes and emotionally driving music to put godless, wicked stuff in our heads and hearts? Third, oh no, Derek Thomas has a really great line here. Let me read it. Those who live according to the principles of holiness do so because their minds walk in step with the Spirit. That's what we were just talking about. That's Romans 8, 5. Ultimately, what we allow ourselves to think upon determines the condition of our lives. Listen to this. Job recognized that sin needs to be starved of oxygen. Think about that. Think about asking yourself the question with regards to this sin with which I'm struggling. Where can I starve it of oxygen? I think that is a really great question for how to get practical about fighting our sin without falling over into legalism and, and self-righteousness and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I think, that's, I think that's a very helpful construct here. And of course, as we've said, practical steps have to be taken. Again, Derek Thomas is so great in this chapter. That's why I keep quoting him. He says, sin needs to be mortified not modified. We toy with the idea so long that we can indulge in some modified form of a particular sin and that will make up for it with increased prayer and Bible study. It is very well to talk about holiness, even to desire holiness, but holiness can only be attained as we implement practical steps in our daily lives. That, that hit home for me, this idea of modifying sin um, sometimes maybe I even go so far as to baptize my sin as to try and put some uh, self-righteous, self-deceiving good purpose for it. Look at the good I'm doing with this you know, uh, piercing anger toward my children. I'm molding them into something. <laughs> you guys feel molded into something? <laughs> See? <laughs> There's, there's the, from the from the mouth of children. Uh, yep. Um, I think along with that, it's been, always been helpful for me to. It's mortifying. There's also a replacing 
with good, it's not just a vacuum that like I'm just going to stop doing this. It's replacing it yep. with holiness or something that is pleasing to God. That's very helpful. What does your heart want to do? What is good? Right. Most of y'all know that I think healthful choices are generally an abomination. Uh, exercise kills, and and eating well is for sad people. <laughs> Leads to pride. That's right. It's my humility is the reason for my. But one of the one of the few healthful things that ever worked for me was when that trendy book came out for a little while, Eat This, Not That, and it was the idea of when you have a craving for something, here's something you can replace it with that is not nearly so bad. It's not replace uh, Oreo cookies with kale. Right? It was, all right, if you're wanting Oreo cookies, you're wanting something sweet, you're wanting a little chocolate, go get yourself a little square of dark chocolate and, and eat that instead. And the whole book was that. Just every single page, you turn it. And I, of course, had the fast food edition. So it was, you're wanting a triple Whopper meal with fries and extra cheese? <laughs> eat a muffin. No. Uh, <laughs> and it would have legitimate substitutions. And it would show you. You can go from 3,500 calories to satisfying this craving and 700 calories. And it's, it's, it's when I stopped drinking soda. I, I drank Coca-Cola constantly. Coke was my favorite liquid in the world. And I've probably had it four or five times in the last 10 years now. And it was just reading that book. Have I realized I want a lot of calories in my Calories and I have a close long-term relationship. But I don't need calories from this. This is not where I want to spend on it. And so that idea, that's a very long-winded story, of what Daphne's saying, replace it with something. Think about the Psalms that say, turn my eyes away from selfish gain and toward your statutes. Give me something better to look at, something better to, to crave, to latch onto. That is a much more likely to be successful approach to mortification than just cold turkey. And that's especially... It's a good mental exercise because so many of our sins are the perversion of delights. And so dig into your sin and and find what the good thing in it was (laughs) that you are taking to excess or in an inappropriate context or um, that that's that's a much higher chance of success approach. And it's kind of the atomic habits thing, too, I think, because it's like, for me, I was always annoyed by people. Everybody. Like, almost everybody annoyed me. And I remember talking to somebody one time, and they go, just quit. And I'm like, really? And, and it really was that easy. But then they also gave me a thing of saying, why don't you pray for that person when you quit? Like, when you're not going to be annoyed at that moment, just say, Father, bless them. Or yep. Lord have mercy, or something, but it it works. It, I mean, it really works. It, it, I think that's why the Atomic Habits book resonated with so many people was because there's there's biblical truth underlying the approach there. And I would also say one of the things that's really helped me in your story, Kathy, is uh, do the thing and pray to God that the heart would follow. Yes, I think that's a really important one-two punch because what we tend to do is to say, Lord, change my heart, and then I'll do the thing. Make me a cheerful giver, and then I will bring my tithes into the storehouse. And I, 
sometimes God does work that way. God, I mean, uh, an example really close to me in my family history worked exactly that way. But that's not the usual way God works. And, and a way that God works a lot is in our doing of the thing. The very fact that you are mechanically making your brain flip the bit from, oh, I can't stand this person, to, Lord, would you provide for this person? And would, That mechanical flipping the heart can follow. Doesn't mean the heart follows it immediately. Doesn't mean the heart follows it every time. But you are laying out for the heart a much better path. Do the thing and ask God to catch your heart up to it. Upward hypocrisy. Yeah, yeah, the right kind. I mean, this is, if, if, if any of y'all have done marriage counseling, hopefully, I mean, any counselor worth their salt in marriage counseling says some form of, Wives, respect your husband while praying that God will make him respectable. Husbands, love your wives while praying God will make her lovable. <laughs> I'll, I'll love her as soon as she's lovable. Whew, we ain't got time. <laughs> and I'll respect him as soon as he's worthy of it. Never happening, ladies. Never happening. You might get one random Tuesday, and then it's the, it's the hope that kills you, right? Uh, yeah, do the thing. Do the thing and ask God to help your heart catch up to it. Isn't it a Nike thing? Just do it? Yeah. And it's, I mean, in the sense that we're, we're, we're on lust, and I don't want to make it super awkward, but, I mean, we're talking about lust, so it's going to be super awkward. I mean, to me, this is one where the, the Christian attitude is often, not the Christian attitude, the sin cycle attitude is basically in for a penny, in for a pound. I've already started down this path. You have the moment of panic of, I shouldn't be here. And then what Satan tells you is, in for a penny, in for a pound. Just see it through. And wouldn't it be better to say, or turn my eyes somewhere else? Mechanically stand up. This is what I tell when I'm counseling young men. Get out of the room that you're in. Mechanically stand up and move to a different room. You'd be stunned 99 point something percent of the time. That, can, that will win the battle against lust in that moment. It is really, really hard to continue down that path when you've decided to empty the dishwasher instead. And your heart will catch up. <laughs> and there's a lot of sins like that. Anger is like that. There's a lot where we feel like, well, I'm in it now. And then we, we, we blame Martin Luther somehow. Sin boldly. It's what Luther told me to do. <laughs> Guys, I don't think that's the right application of that principle. I don't think that's how that works. Do the thing mechanically, and the heart will follow. God is so gracious to give us all of these complex reasons to avoid sin. And, and Satan wants to convince us that those aren't good enough reasons to avoid sin unless we're avoiding sin only for the purest of reasons. God isn't pleased anyway, so you may as well. And it's just a bunch of nonsense. He does this all the time. Do you care? Uh, again, we're, just, we're all in on the, on the awkward conversation. Your, your, your teenage daughter is uh, in a position where the opportunity is to have sex with this boy. Isn't God gracious? That fear of disease, fear of pregnancy, fear of shame, fear of all these other things, fear of being physically harmed by something like all of those reasons 
are there to help her choose what, in a vacuum on a page of a Bible, we would say, well, she should just choose that because she loves God more than self. Well, yes, and isn't God gracious? Now go to all your other sins. God's given you all of these extra reasons why you don't want to do this. This is going to create a fight. This is going to go three days. We're not going to speak to each other. This is going to be a waste of money. This is going to be... And Satan says, oh, those aren't good enough reasons. You should just do it. Give in to your lust. Give in to your anger. It's fun. You can't do it all for God. Just like, what a bunch of nonsense. Do the thing. Do the right thing. And ask God for the heart to follow. Sorry, somebody else had a... No? Nobody want to touch that one with a 10-foot pole, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, all right. Uh, last point, and then we'll save the list of the rest of the sins for next week. Life must be lived in light of God's presence. It's not often that there's a phrase from Greek or Hebrew or Latin that it really matters to have as part of your vocabulary. But every now and then, especially with poetic phrases, the old languages have a way of communicating something that is so much weightier and more helpful than the English translation. And Coram Deo is one of those. Um, if you read Table Talk, I think there's a page every month that's the, or maybe a section, that's the Coram Deo before the face of God, specifically living before the face of God, that your, your life is lived in this close connection with God's own presence. Not God is watching you and ready to pounce and punish every time you do something wrong. It's, it's the... Uh, congratulations to Nathan. He made both of his free throws yesterday. The first points for his team in the game. A lot of pressure. You know, they're, they're about to get blowed out, and you're the first person on the free throw line, and he made both of his free throws. And I don't say this next part to embarrass him, but I say it because many of you will understand. What's the first thing he did after he made his free throws? Looks at me. Why? We all know why. It's what we do. That's how our lives are to be before God, is to live a life that we want to look up at our Father and say, aren't you pleased with me? And we, we don't always do things that please our Father. And we know that we can go to our Father with forgive, and, and receive forgiveness. But the reason... reason the blood out of that goodness. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The reason we keep looking up at our, our Heavenly Father is because He will never do what our earthly fathers do, which is to withhold love until we do better. Earthly fathers are great at that, right? That's, that's how we make them strong. Every, every father looked at me and then looked down. <laughs> our Heavenly Father never does that. That's why uh, shame is real, but shame should never be overwhelming because shame should drive us to the foot of the cross where we look up at a heavenly father who says, can I take that shame for you? Oh, that's Coram Deo. That's life before the face of God. And you have to live that way or you will never win against sin and you'll be miserable. Job said in verse four, does he not see my ways and count my every step? And it's this incredible tension Tension sounds confrontational. It's this incredible, uh, glorious 
mystery of the faith. That God is, as Job said, great and to be feared. And that God is our Father, uh, abounding in steadfast love, compassion. Look, I mean, uh, somebody... uh, uh, actually had the opportunity of uh, somebody that I work with was asking me a question about the Bible a couple weeks ago. And uh, delight comes to your heart when you think about God saying, yes, he he visits curse on sinners to seven generations. And he visits forgiveness, compassion, and steadfast love to a thousand generations. What kind of God is that? And we live our lives before the face of that God. And that's, that's why we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to define the identity of this church around the Christian life as a get-to, not a have-to. Worship is a get-to. Prayer is a get-to. These are not things you have to do or God will smite you. These are not things you have to do or your elders will bring, breathe down your neck. What we're trying to say is, Don't you see the opportunity that's here? This thing that you're feeling that is making you resist or that is making you feel burdened or that is making you feel ashamed or making you feel afraid of coming before the Lord. Do you know what the very thing you need to finally be relieved of that is? The presence of God. Come before the Lord. Uh, So that's a nice tie into the sermon as well because this idea that God's own presence is our joy been studying this a lot over the past few months. What is joy really? And it is a life in the awareness of God's presence. Joy manifests itself in certain ways. Joy can manifest itself with praise. Um, that's the most common. But what joy itself is, is a life that is aware of the presence of God with you. Uh, it's it's, it's It's transformational. It's how joy can be with you in the darkest of circumstances. and Because the presence of God is not just abstractly with you. The face of God is before you. And if we ever want to win against sin, especially the sins that Job is going to list out, these are are tough. (laughs) This is is not, you know, don't kill grandma for her insurance money. This is... (laughs) which I I hope is easy for most of you. Uh, If not, let's talk. Probably before the service, let's talk. (laughs)